Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. You don't have to be afraid of flying to know that it's not natural for us to be up there in the sky like that. So when you are up there experiencing some intense turbulence, you may find yourself shaking off the idea that, unlikely as it would be, the odds are 1 in 1.2 million, it's not impossible that the plane will go down. Today you'll hear stories from two people who were on planes that crashed and survived, including one woman who was one of only two survivors of a crash that killed 107 people, 59 of which were her classmates. Is this actually for real? Like, am I actually inside a plane that's like, malfunctioning like this doesn't happen and you'll hear from a pilot who leapt from his plane as it was going down suffering third degree burns all over his body including his face what was he thinking when he saw his face for the first time after the crash it was a real shock i mean i looked like you know the distant cousin of like the elephant man i'm kyone wolf that's coming up next on audacious right after the news From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Back in 2002, I was on a flight from San Francisco back to the East Coast when there was a lot of turbulence. Like, a lot of turbulence. Now, besides the fact that I definitely feel like it is wholly unnatural for a human being to be hurling through the air in a metal tube... Unlike the estimated 25 million adults in the U.S. who are aerophobic, I've never really been afraid of it. I don't know if it's that the odds are so low that anything could happen, or I don't know if my heart just can't handle one more thing to be anxious about that I can't really control, but I've always kind of loved flying. What an achievement of technology, right? And what beautiful views. So when the turbulence started on this flight, I didn't really think much of it until it got really bad. Like people doing the sign of the cross and downing their drinks, bad. Now, when it occurred to me that this could be the end of my life, I felt euphoric. Now, hear me out. Hear me out, because these were the things that were crossing my mind as the plane rattled and dipped. I've always wondered how I was going to die, you know, and now I know, and I have a few seconds to think about my loved ones. That's nice. And I'll probably die instantly, and that's good. I don't want to suffer. And it wasn't because I did something stupid, like drive drunk. It was just I bought the wrong plane ticket, you know? Now, spoiler, the plane did not crash. And most of the time, that's how that story ends, right? The odds that you'll be in an airplane crash are about 1 in 1.2 million. And the odds that you'll die that way, 1 in 11 million. Our guests today have defied odds. They have harrowing stories about survival and how that one event changed the rest of their lives. Later, you'll meet a man who was learning to fly solo when the wing of his aircraft caught fire. But first, Kechi Okuchi was just 16 years old when she woke up in a South African hospital. Third-degree burns covered over 65% of her body, including her face and her head. She was one of only two survivors of a December 2005 crash that killed 107 people. 59 of those were her classmates, flying home from their boarding school in Abuja, Nigeria, for the Christmas holidays. 
The final reports from the investigation said that it happened as a result of pilot error in response to extreme wind and rain conditions. I asked Ketchy, what did she remember from Sosaliso Airlines Flight 1145? Most of it was uneventful. You know, it was just a regular flight, nothing special, nothing odd, which is exactly how flights should be. It didn't start to get weird or, you know, different until the end. By the time we started like descent into the airport, that was when the weirdness started, basically. But before that moment, it was all fine. So what did happen? It started with turbulence. At first, it wasn't anything to worry about. You know, if you fly, you know it's a thing that happened. It's not a big deal. But then it just kept going and kept getting worse. And at a point, it just got obvious that something was different about this one. And no one wanted to say anything. You know, there was no shouting or anything. It was just dead quiet in the cabin. I remember feeling like the tension was just thick in the air of what everyone was thinking but didn't want to say, you know, because you don't board a plane thinking that the, the worst will happen or like it's so rare, you know, even though it's a fear that at the end of the day, it is kind of in the back of everyone's minds, but you go so long with nothing happening, you think it's just never going to happen because it's just something that doesn't really happen, you know? So at some point, a lady just kind of, there was a scream from the back of the plane that was what just like broke the tension and everything just kind of spiraled into chaos with screaming and shouting. No running around or anything, obviously, just like people just kind of screaming bloody murder, just like, and shouting God, you know, like, you know, praying loudly. And I just remember sitting there shell-shocked because it was just movie-like. It was just like, is this real? Like, what is happening right now? Is this, is, that, is this actually for real? Like, am I actually inside a plane that's like malfunctioning? Like, this doesn't happen. My last memory is holding my friend's hand. She was in, I was in an aisle seat in front and she was in the aisle seat next to mine. And I remember like her eyes, like she was just like huge eyes, glassy looking at me. And she was like, what do we do? What's happening? What is this? What do we do? And I was like, I don't know, maybe we should pray. That's my last memory before everything just went dark. It was literally just like this nail scraping on chalkboard kind of scraping sound that kind of jarred the brain. It sounded like metal scraping against metal. And that's like the last thing I remember before the darkness just took over which is, I'm guessing, when the plane hit like the ground or something. My next vivid memory after that is, you know, I was lying down in the hospital bed and I was in South Africa. I was looking up at the nurse and my mom's face. And did they tell you, you know, that this plane had crashed out of the 109 passengers on the plane only two survived and you were one of them? Like, how, what did they, how did they tell you what happened? When I opened my eyes from the coma, I knew what had happened because my mom had been telling me what happened in my comatose state. She was talking to me. She would tell me that I was in a plane that crashed, but that I was going to be okay. I was in South Africa and I was getting treatment and everything was going to be fine. So when I opened my eyes, I knew exactly where I was. I knew what had happened. And I believed because my mom said I was going to be fine, that I was going to be fine. You know? Moms do have that uncanny ability. Yeah. Yep. Very true. I mean, she said it, therefore it, it must be true. That was what I, that was the extent of what I knew, you know, over time I found out the degree of my burns, you know, third degree over 
65% of my body. But the truth of the accident, the truth of the amount of people that passed away, the truth of the fact that all my friends were gone, that came five months into my treatment. They couldn't tell me that immediately because, you know, the shock factor would be might be too much for me to take psychologically, physically. They had to make sure I got to a place where I was for sure going to survive. And that, you know, I had gotten enough like psychological like counseling before they told me all that. So that was a whole different hurdle altogether that came much later in my treatment. You had so many things to grieve. You know, you grieve the loss of your friends. You grieve the loss of a feeling of safety in this world. You lost the way you looked before. What are your thoughts on grief? Um, grief is, for me, it was this um, overwhelming emotion that um, felt like a, a sinking, like a constant sinking feeling, you know, sinking into into yourself, into darkness, and not being able to see a way out, not being able to see anything past your trauma, what you're currently going through. And for me, the worst of it was after I found out the truth of the accident, when I found out that I was only, I was one of two survivors. You know, it hit me hard to realize not only that those people were gone, but just to think about their parents, and their loved ones that they left behind. I knew most, most of them, a lot of them, I knew their parents. And I just could not fathom, like, if I was feeling this way, how they were feeling, you know? And, you know, it just, everything just came to me like, wow, this is, this is too much to bear. Like, and at this time, I was in the process of learning about God. I was in the process of learning a lot about just faith and the Bible and things like that. And everything just came to a crashing halt because it was like, I'm so confused about how this good God would allow, forget about the 107, the fact that that's already terrible enough, but 60 of those were children. Like, how are you good? And you let that kind of thing happen. It made no sense to me. So I struggled with that as well, you know, with like with my faith. And I felt like this is just a downward spiral. You know, I don't see how I'm going to come out of this. And at that time, my my pain and the itching that comes with the burning, like the wounds that he, as they heal, like we're at their peak, you know? So everything together was just making me feel crazy. And I remember my mom, the words that she said to me stuck and will stick forever. And, you know, she was like, there's no explanation sometimes catchy, for why bad things happen. Sometimes happens and it happens to good people it happens to bad people life happens it doesn't care about whether you're a good or, not, or a bad person you know we may never ever know why this happened those parents may never know why they lost their kids you may never know why you have these parents nothing you know but what you do have control over is how you react to things when they happen the people who survive the ones who are here that remain we go through the grief and time passes and we can decide how it, we allow it to, you know, um, affect us and how we allow it to, to change us basically. Yeah. It's like, you don't get over it. You don't get over grief. You integrate it. And yes. 
Exactly. You remind me of, I had a conversation, did a show a while back about um, identical twins, and I interviewed this guy. He had an identical twin who, they went swimming when they were 16, and his twin accidentally drowned. And now he um, feels, and he's in his 70s now, he feels like his whole life he's wanted to live twice as much, you know, like for his brother. And I wonder if that is part of um, the way back of your head, not that you owe it to these people who died, but is that something that is a component to the force with which you integrate this grief? Definitely. Oh, heck yeah. I mean, that is a definite reaction and response to grief. That was a major part of my purpose, is a major part of my purpose, to live for the 60 angels, because that's what they started calling the kids that passed away that day, to live for them. I had to. I survived something that they didn't. I, I, I am here and they're not. And I felt this responsibility, you know? I didn't pull myself out of that plane. But for some reason, I got the second chance at life that they didn't, myself and one other person who I didn't even know before the accident. Whatever I find myself doing, wherever I find myself, whatever it is, however mundane or amazing, do it completely and fully with my entire being. Put my whole self into it. Do it as excellently as possible. Live as excellently as possible in every situation, the ordinary, the ordinary ones and the extraordinary ones. For me, I felt like that was the least I could do to show those angels that I appreciate this second chance at life that I have. And I'm going to live it and make them proud so that they can look down on me and know that I, that I am not taking this life for granted. And I needed their parents and their loved ones and their siblings to know that this was not a life that was being taken for granted at all. I needed them, of all people, to know that I was doing my best with this life because I knew that it meant that much to them. So, you know, you face death in the most personal way. And so life has to mean that much more to you. Just has to. We're going out of this segment with the song, Don't You Dare. It's a track off of Ketchy's self-titled album, which just came out on April 15th. We'll have a link to it at ctpublic.org slash audacious. When we get back, what it was like for Ketchy to get on a plane again. The worst has already happened. What? What? Look, it's done. It's over. I've already finished. My, my karma in this particular thing is run out. It's done. <laughs> Plus. I did not look down. I knew not to look down. And then I jumped from the trailing edge of the back of the left wing of the aircraft. I landed feet first. What it's like surviving a solo crash as a pilot. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me.
This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today, our show features people who've survived plane crashes. Before the break, you heard the voice of Kechi Okuchi. She's the author of More Than My Scars, a memoir about being one of only two survivors in a 2005 plane crash that claimed 107 lives. 59 of those were her schoolmates. Let's get back to our conversation. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was riding my bike through an intersection in Hartford and I was hit by a car and... Oh my uh, God. Thankfully, I had a helmet on. So <laughs> that's what ensured so I could tell the story later, but oh. um, broke my collarbone, got a plate and eight screws. And um, I remember when I was cleared to get back on the bike by my doctor, the first thing I did was ride through that intersection because, you know, I'm not going to develop something stupid over this. I'm not going to start you know, developing some sort of phobia. And then I I was all bike all the time. And then about a year, about a year later, I was like, you know what? No, 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 not going to, not going to ride my bike on the street anymore. So now I, I take my bike to like a reservoir where it's off the roads and stuff. But what was it like for you when you got on a plane for the first time after all of this? Was it anything like that? So the answer is kind of, interesting because the, if we're talking about the actual like very first time I got on the plane after it was the next day because I had to fly from Nigeria to South Africa to start my emergency treatment you know Nigeria we don't have we didn't have the infrastructure you know in place for to care for it like the level of burns and injuries I sustained so the next best place the place the place that did have that was South Africa Johannesburg I do remember the flight from Nigeria to America. And at that point, honestly, I knew that I'd already flown twice since the accident. And in my mind, it seems like no matter what I do, this whole flying thing is just going to be my life. Like you got to fly to get to places. Like what the hell? Plus like, what are the odds, right? Please. What are the odds? Come on. You've already, you've used it up. It's done. Exactly. (laughs) So that was literally my point of view. I was like, you know what? Screw this. The worst has already happened. What? What? Look, it's done. It's over. I've already finished my, my karma in this particular thing. It's run out. It's done. <laughs> Lord, if, I, if it happens again, just might as well take me. It's done. I, I'm Clearly. I'm, I'm, got it. That's how you want me to go. Okay. Got it. Message received. You know? <laughs> just make it quick. <laughs> exactly. So that's how it was for me. I was just like, I can't seem to avoid it. Got to fly to get around. Got to fly to get treatment. Got to fly to get to a hospital. Got to fly, fly. I mean, okay, cool. So what changed was that right before the wheels touched the ground, literally not even as we're descending, but that moment where the wheels, like the seconds before it makes that impact with the ground when the plane's coming down, I used to have this reflex reaction that I couldn't control where my heart would start pounding and I would just start feeling like nervous And I would have to like typically hold onto the hands of someone I'm traveling with or like grab onto like the seat handles. That obviously is a reaction from like my trauma clearly, you know, but it's based off of a memory I do not have. I can't remember. I have no idea, but I know for sure it's probably like some kind of reaction to the actual crash. But since I don't remember the crash, it's just a body reflex, but nothing happens like psychologically. So that was something that I know for sure was a direct result of the accidents. And to me, it was not enough not to fly. It was like, that's the one thing I need to deal with to fly. Then I'll do what I have to do, you know. But interestingly enough, with what you said specifically about going back to ground zero, quote unquote, 
So 2015 was the first time I went back to Nigeria after the accident happened. 10 years passed. I, w- I wanted to be there in person for the 10 year anniversary, right? So I flew back home and I flew into Lagos. Now the accident happened in Patakot. So I would have to fly from Lagos to Patakot, basically. So that's my look, that's a local flight. So that was my, that would be my first local flight. And it was literally the route, you know, that the accident happened. And so my aunt was like, catchy. Let's talk about this. Okay, so the thing is, we can't fly in today, which is the ninth, to Potapot for the thing, which is on the 10th, which is the anniversary of the accident. It looks like we're going to have to fly in tomorrow, December 10th. So what do you want to do? How do you feel? Do you still want to go? What do you want to do? And I remember thinking about it like for like two seconds. And I was just like, I mean, yeah, hell yeah, we're fine. We're, we're going. There's no, because like that day is not, we're not, we're not about to, jinx that day or give it some weird kind of juju vibes like it's just a day and I'm not about to like allow that day to become something that it's not so if we have to fly December 10th then we're going to fly December 10th it's just another day that day is not it's not cursed okay and we're not going to give it that feeling so um at the end of the day also how am I going to live the life I promised I would live if I only went to places I could drive to it's not possible so, yeah, you were just 16 when this happened. Being 16 is hard <laughs> enough, <Already. laughs> uh, let alone to have to be face to face with this experience. Um, and you're in your early 30s now. You, you, of course, you did a TED Talk. You're on America's Got Talent, which, by the way, you have a beautiful voice. <laughs> Thank you so much. And now you have a memoir, More Than My Scars. Yes. I came out at the end of March and um, that's a lot to pack into <laughs> this little bit of life, um, almost double the life that you've lived before the crash. If you, as you now were able to talk to yourself as you boarded that plane, you weren't, you wouldn't be able to stop her. Things would happen as they would. Yeah. But if you were to be able to say, anything to her as she boarded that plane, what would it be? What would I tell her? I would tell her that life very rarely goes the way that you plan for it to go. I would tell her that man proposes, God disposes. I would tell her to take that very seriously things happen that just like blew our plans out of the water, you know? What I would tell her is what my mom told me. You cannot control what happens to you in this life. You cannot control life, but you do have some power over how to react when life happens. So just keep that in mind as you're living, okay? (laughs) I think that's the best advice I could possibly give her, give anyone really. While it is obviously something that will be defining for you for the rest of your life. True. It's also like you're more than this. I'd like to hear about that tension between this being everything and also you have so much more. Mm. That idea of being more than what has happened to me, more than my trauma, that is literally the theme of my book. That's the whole point of it, being more than your scars. We are more than the things that have happened to us. We're more than our physical appearance. We're more than our trauma, mental, physical, psychological, whatever you want to call it. 
not only is it my life mantra, but it's the foundation of my identity. Being thrust in a position like mine where I was stripped of my physical, I had a choice to make. Was I going to allow myself to be defined continuously by what the world decides is beautiful? Or was I going to find beauty in something that went beyond the physical? I knew that if I wanted to live a life that was free and open and genuine, authentic, I could not afford to allow other people to tell me how to feel about myself. So I had to understand that there was more to me than my physical appearance that was taken from me. And the moment I understood that, I felt a freedom that I cannot explain. You know, you have to understand, like, as a 16-year-old, and I don't know if you've seen any pictures of me from before, but like, I was gorgeous and I was so aware of it. And I, as a teenager, like, I was like any typical girl. Like it was, so my appearance was very important to me. And the fact that I was pretty made me even more confident. So it became a case of like losing that physical thing and then being afraid of like how much of me would change because I was different now on the outside. You know, I had to come like, at a cro- like face-to-face with myself and see just how much of me actually, my, like my confidence, how much of my other qualities that I like about myself come out of my confidence and my physical appearance. Let's figure this out, Ketchy. And, and if, it's, if it's really bad, then we need to start therapy ASAP, you know? But if it's not, then at least now we know that we value other things about ourselves too. And so when I first saw myself in the mirror for the, like after the accident, the first time was like four months in, I remember just thinking like, damn, who is this? This looks nothing like Ketchy. But the interesting, crazy thing in that moment was also the fact that like, it didn't look like me, but it felt like me. That realization that like, I can still feel like me, even if I don't look like me, opened up my eyes to the fact that whatever makes us who we are, obviously goes beyond the physical. And if that's the case, then I don't have to change. I don't have to act like a different person now, just because I look like, I don't look like what people think catchy is. Because the essence of, what makes me catchy hasn't actually changed. I was free of like opinions of other people. They would, you know, people will say what they want and they will believe what they want to believe as well. But as long as I completely separated my identity from their personal beliefs and their opinions, and even my opinions of like physical beauty, then nothing was like, Literally, the world was going to be my oyster. I could dress how I wanted. I didn't have to hide from the world. I know the ironic thing about hiding scars and hiding stuff is like, the more you try to hide it, the more obvious it becomes because that's all people see. Like the thing you're hiding the most becomes ironically the only thing people see because it's so obvious that this is something that means so much to you. You're so self-conscious about it. It becomes instantly obvious. It's almost like a person who, is so uncomfortable with like their hair and keeps fidgeting with their hair every time they talk. And you can tell that they're trying to like, you know, make it seem like, you know, it's fine and always like fussing with it. I mean, that's all you're going to see. All you're going to see is the hair. (laughs) That's all. And I feel like that's what it is with like scars. Like with my scars, I felt like the more, if I try to hide this thing, that's all people are going to see about me, which is so funny because that's the whole point of me hiding is because I don't want them to see, you know? So, so why bother? You know, why hide that? I feel like being myself, wearing what I want, doing what I want, that is what has helped in my interactions with people the most because that's what helps them see beyond my physical appearance, me just being me. 
And that's the same for anyone, I think. So I think that's all kind of um, how I define being more than your scars and being more than the, the trauma, the things that happen to you. Me being myself and being authentic and presenting that authenticity to the world is what has helped the most in relationships because like when you're yourself, then people get to see beyond what's on the outside. And I, I, that's what I want more than anything, genuine relationships and genuine interactions. I know that when people see me, there can be, I mean, I know how I look. So it's definitely, it can be daunting for someone who's never met me before. And I feel like I have a role to play in how, how we receive each other in that interaction. I have, I'm not passive. I can decide how this conversation and this interaction goes. And so if I'm just me, it helps you get more comfortable and then you get to see beyond the scars and get to see catchy. So that's how I've kind of lived my life so far. And um, it's pretty much the reason why I wrote this book. I wanted people to understand that we are more than our trauma, you know, and that there's life after trauma. Catchy Okuchi, I so appreciate that you're still here and thank you for your generous time with me. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it, Kayan. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You can read so much more about Ketchy's experience after the crash in her book, More Than My Scars. And you can experience more of her beautiful voice. Now that her album is out, we'll have links to both at ctpublic.org slash audacious. After the break. The pain washed over me like a giant tsunami from head to toe. And all in all sincerity, I didn't believe that I was going to be able to hold on. What happened to a pilot who survived a crash? I'm Kion Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf. Today we're meeting people who've survived plane crashes. And now I want you to meet Jamie Hull. It was 2007, and not only was Jamie a soldier with the UK Special Forces, but he was also a paramedic, a mountain climber, a scuba instructor, and a skier. He was participating in a training program in Florida to add pilot to his resume when everything happened. I asked him to bring me back to his solo training flight at the facility when he knew something had gone terribly wrong. I looked out my left-hand canopy window and I saw a very clear and distinctive thin streak of visible yellow-orange flame. And no sooner as I spotted it, I made a concerted effort to not just come crosswind, but then to make my final turn 90 degrees left banking now into wind. I'm now facing the active runway below. But as I turned that final turn now into wind, the fire that I'd seen externally coming from the front portion of the aircraft immediately breached the cockpit internally. So I looked down at my feet on the rudder pedals and essentially the flames were starting to lap around my feet and ankles. And, And the thought of what was going on around me was really starting to get me quite flustered and initially panicked. I I won't sort of lie about that. I actually felt quite panicked with the situation. And I'm descending down from 1,000 feet indicated. And when I got to approximately 500 feet indicated above ground, the fire was now 
approximately halfway up in the small chamber of the two-seater cockpit. So I'm now steering gently to my left towards a grassy embankment in the distance. I switch the key to the ignition off. The red switches for the what they call magnetos, the alpha and bravo, off, off. I switch the, the lights off, the strobes off, uh, the master switch off. In the center column, uh, now the fuel pump off and the fuel selector valve, I rotate that through um, 90 degrees and turn the fuel selector valve off. Very low level now, just about 200 feet above the ground. And I'm now purely judging it by human eyeball. So I'm looking out the front of the canopy window. I'm looking left. I'm looking right. I'm looking for hazards. I'm looking for obstacles. Very low level. I managed to remove my headset because I was a bit worried about that being a hindrance or a hazard in itself. And perhaps the, the lead getting caught around my neck or something. So I reached across to my left-hand side and I started to carefully undo the door handle. So now the door is open, a bit like Lamborghini style. It was open to the vertical position. However, there was an increased backwash of wind and that increased wind was starting to drive into the cockpit. And then very, very low level now, 50 feet, 40 feet, 30 feet, just tweaking the stick between my knees in those last seconds to maintain a good attitude of the aircraft. Because I didn't want to come in sort of too nose heavy for obvious reasons, but I needed to sort of pull back at times gently on the stick to keep the flare, to just scrub off a little bit of airspeed. And then approximately 20 feet, I clambered quickly onto the left-hand um, skipper seat of the aircraft that I was sat in and then managed to climb out because the door, the door aperture was wide open now, remember? So climbed through that door aperture onto the left wing and I did not look down. I knew not to look down. And then I jumped from the trailing edge of the back of the left wing of the aircraft. I landed, fortunately, feet first in the long Florida grass. However, I then thrust forward because of the speed of the, of the impact with the ground and immediately thrust forward and my body sort of slammed into the ground. I face planted the, the long grass. I inadvertently uh, ruptured my, my nose bone. I had superorbital eye socket fractures to the top of both eye sockets. In the action of the jump, the kinetic force and the energy traveled through my torso section in the sort of gut region of my body. And that caused me to inadvertently rupture the colon, the large intestine. And my liver also got uh, lacerated in the process and was now hemorrhaging and bleeding. I popped a couple of ribs and I think I popped my collarbone as well, the, the, the clavicle. The worst aspect of the trauma was the fact that I was 63% third and fourth degree burns. When you were lying on the ground waiting for help and uh, the pain was beginning to occur to you, will you talk about what you did with your shoes? Okay, yeah, that is interesting. Okay, so I tried to what they call leopard crawl through the grass. So I'm probably no more than about 90 feet away from the, from the burning wreckage in the distance. At that moment, I turned and I managed to sort of stand on my knees and my hands in front of my face looking back to sort of survey the wreckage. That's when the pain hit me. And it was indescribable. It, it, the pain washed over me like a giant tsunami from 
from head to toe. And I, all in all sincerity, I didn't believe that I was going to be able to hold on. And I was holding on with everything. I was like a man on the edge, a man on a knife edge. It felt like my, my life on a thread. Did you have thoughts? I mean, like when people report being close to death, you know, they have these, my life flashed in front, in front of my eyes, or I thought, you know, the things that I regretted not doing. I mean, when you were in this reckoning moment, possibly at the end of your life, do you remember if there were thoughts about what, what your life was or what you wished it had been? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, honest to God, I knew that my life was very much in the balance and I had moments to go, like maybe minutes at best. The first reaction in my mind was anger, anger at what had just occurred and the fact that I'd been so badly burned in the process. Within a space of a few, a couple of minutes, two, three minutes, my rationale in my mind changed. And from anger, it switched to despair and utter grief because I knew that there was no going back. So from anger to despair and utter grief. And within 10 minutes, the third switch in my mind was resignation because I knew that I had moments to spare and that was my life. You know, I was going to be gone. So with the resignation, in the rational sense, I decided to do something quite bizarre and I took my shoes and socks off Uh, because I realized this was one journey that I wasn't going to need my shoes and socks for. And I carefully tucked my laces into my shoes. I had these suede, like new buck style hiking shoes. I remember that. And the sports socks and the laces. I tucked it all in nice and neat. Remember, I was a soldier. Yeah, so I wanted a little bit of order to the very end. Shoes and socks came off and I laid them gently together to the right-hand side of my body. And I lay back, like looking up, but I couldn't see now because I was blinded from the reaction of the, the significant burns to my face. And I, I remember the, the sort of warmth, the rays of the sun beaming down on me, but I grew colder and weaker and colder. And I knew that um, I didn't have long. And then moments later, I heard the unmistakable sort of woo, 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 woo. And I remember the chatter of the emergency radios, the paramedic sort of in my ear. He said to me, hey, buddy, hey, buddy, you know, you hang in there, man. We're going to help you. You hang in there. And I gave it everything I possibly could muster to hold on. Uh, But in all honesty, I did not believe that I was going to make it. And then probably about another five minutes, they moved me on a stretcher and there was a helicopter waiting. And then I remember the, um, the unmistakable sort of whoop, 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 whoop. And I landed at, um, they took me to Orlando Regional Health Center, which happened to be, this is where I got lucky. So this is um, probably the best trauma facility in the USA, Orlando Regional Health. And they drug induced me and then done the observations, done the medical assessment. I can remember talking to some doctors and nurses on arrival when I got off the back of the chopper. The next thing, nothing. And the truth is they put me down. Uh, literally, they they put me to sleep in a drug-induced coma for six months. And um, the doctors, the nurses, the specialists, the um, physiotherapists, the interventional radiologists, they looked after me around the clock, 24-7, for six months in Orlando Regional. 
And like Humpty Dumpty, somehow they put me back together again. Yeah, they had given you a they had given you a five percent chance of survival. You, of course, as you mentioned, you had great insurance, but if you didn't, it would have totaled about two point six million dollars, which included the cost of sixty two operations, many of them being facial reconstruction surgeries. You have burns. Uh, you've had your face uh, reconstructed, and your face looks a lot different than it did before. I wonder if you could talk about. Um, yeah, sure. So as you rightfully said, the, the U.S. medics, the doctors, um, they did a hell of a lot for me. In fact, I owe them and the medical services over there a huge debt of gratitude because they did a huge amount for me and I'm tremendously grateful. They did an awful lot of facial skin grafts. I even had my eyelids grafted, upper and lower eyelids. I had a multitude of, of skin type operations from human donor skin. That's cadaver. And he, or sometimes recently um, um, harvested, uh, it could have been like men and women that have gone in for adipose, like fat reduction, and I got some of that skin. Or it could be my own skin from my own skin grafts, uh, but they can only harvest it so many times and then the skin loses viability at the, um, the donor sites that I'm, that I'm sort of donating for myself. Pig skin, um, artificial skin. So the doctors in America were doing an awful lot of trial and error and trying all sorts of things. Now, every Burns patient is different because we've all got different DNA. So what works for me might not work for the next guy. So it was a tremendous journey that the doctors had, and my consultants over there were working tirelessly for that six-month period to try to get the cover that I needed. May I ask what you remember from the first time that you saw your face after the crash? Because it's one thing to see burns on any other part of your body, but this is your face. What was that like to see? I, the, tr the truth is I didn't really get to see my face from the, the conscious memory aspect because I was drug-induced in the U.S., but the first conscious memories that I have of looking at myself was back in England. So I'm at a hospital in, in England, uh, close to London. One of the nurses there gave me a mirror so this was approximately six months down the road. And one of the nurses says, all right, Jamie, we've got to, you've got to get you set up in bed now and we've got to get you looking at yourself because your appearance, your facial appearance has changed and you need to see what you look like. You need to see what the changes are because, you know, you, you, it's part of your recovery. So she brought me this mirror. I looked at it in the, for the first time. And I remember looking in that mirror six months later and, oh, my God, it was a real shock. I mean, I looked like, you know, the distant cousin of like the elephant man. That's how it felt to me. I didn't recognize myself. I mean, this was in the early years. Yeah. My face was really swollen, really red, really blotchy. And I honestly did not recognize my own face. And that was quite alarming and, and, and very disconcerting. And that was a, that was a, you know, as we say, that was a bitter pill to swallow. That really was that notion of the change of appearance. So it was a real life changer for me. And as a young man, I had to get used to that. And that took a long time, you know, to come to terms with um, the massive change of appearance. But over the course of time, you know, as they say, time is a healer and you can figuratively learn to accept. Will you tell me about how you got back in the air? Is it true you got on a hot air balloon? Yeah, correct. So I did a little bit of light aircraft back in the UK. Um, but in all honesty, I was never going to go, I was never going to pass the medical now for what they call class one 
Civil Aviation Authority Class 1 medical for commercial um, pilot standards. So that dream was um, no longer an, op- an option for me. However, I did apply for a couple of flying scholarships, and I got picked up for one particular scholarship, incidentally, from the company Boeing. So Boeing sponsored me um, in 2017, I believe it was. It was interesting because it was a, what they call a, a disabled ballooning scholarship to learn to fly a hot air balloon. And I did my training in Italy with a, with a gentleman that had actually been around the world uh, called Brian Jones, who was another Englishman. And so this guy trained me and I did a full-time uh, comprehensive ballooning aviation course. I did about probably 30 hours with the balloon training in close to the Italian Alps. So you know when you watch a movie and it's like Paramount Pictures at the start of the movie? Yeah. Well, that's called Monvisa. And I was flying close to that. And it was a beautiful setting. And I was flying up to altitudes of 10,000 feet without um, um, supplementary oxygen. And then finally, when I'd done all the training with the instructor and I did my examination, check flight and all the written exams, I got to go solo. And that was an amazing thing for me, you know, because there I was, you know, Jamie Hull, remember, version 2.0, the new guy, you know, in the new body, in this new skin. And But I'm pinching myself because I was at altitude again on my own, albeit um, this time it was a little bit more sedate, but unbelievable. I mean, looking down on the world and really reflecting and contemplating the journey that I'd been on. It was a wonderful thing for me to get back in the air and to kind of go full circle with the flying, if you will. And that gave me a lot of confidence in myself. And if you like, made me realize that, listen, there's a whole world out there for all of us. And I think my underlying message for listeners is, no matter how grave the obstacles we may face in this life can be, that we need to believe in ourselves, that with great will and determination, all of us can overcome life's greatest obstacles you just have to believe and you just have to believe in yourself and stay hungry for the process with that will and determination we can fight through and we can still achieve our dreams objectives and in some cases like life's goals and ambitions because if i can fight through this i hope that many people can fight through their own journeys and um, and challenges in life and, and that's my bottom line really hoping to help people and inspire them but also empower them in their own lives respectively and in your life when the next hard thing happens you know like this doesn't mean you're off scot-free and nothing ever and nothing bad is going to ever happen to you uh, i imagine that when when that next hard thing happens you're going to have so many resources to pull from for sure like for me now, any new challenges pale into insignificance compared to what I've been through. You know, let's say I wake up out, you know, I feel like I'm having a bad day. I kind of get up on the wrong side of the bed and like the day's not going quite as planned or it's a tough day or honestly, compared to what I went through in those early years, you know, coming through the hospitalization, this is a walk in the park. And, and even though I'm facing new challenges, because we all do, because life's not a bed of roses. Life is tough at times for all of us. But, um, yeah, just to have that continual perpetual faith and to keep pushing forward, to keep marching forwards, and above all, 
to keep your chin up. That's really, really important. Keep your chin up and, and nurture your good mental health. You know, eat well, sleep well, take some exercise. And because, it, you know, um, health is not handed on a plate. We are somewhat rewarded um, for that effort that we put in, if you understand. I've saved the most difficult question for last, uh, but I hope you understand that as an interviewer for public radio, I have to really put myself in the place of my listeners who will be wondering um, who's going to play you in the movie. Well, if I'm fortunate enough that it ever gets picked up, honestly, I don't know. I wouldn't like to say. There's a lot of great actors out there, especially, you know, say, you know, American actors or whatever. But it, listen, if it's going to be an American actor, let's face it, it's got to be an American actor that can do a bloody good English accent. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Well, Jamie Hull, thank you so very much for talking with me. You're very welcome indeed. Thank you very much for having me on. You can hear more about what happened to Jamie, including the story of the person who changed his entire trajectory of healing in his book, Life on a Thread. We'll have a link to it at ctpublic.org slash audacious. This show is always lovingly produced by me, Jessica Severin D. Martinez, and Katie Talarski, with help from our courageous interns, Michaela Savitt and Sarah Gasparato at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Subscribe to Audacious, and you'll always get to hear the show a day early. Plus, you can listen back to shows featuring things like the psychology, history, and contradictions behind many superstitions, including on airplanes, and how a woman communicated her way out of locked-in syndrome using blinking, and what a 911 operator who hears from people on the worst days of their lives feels when she talks with God. You can hear them all at ctpublic.org slash audacious or wherever you get your podcasts. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kyone Wolf. Send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening. Listening.